Welcome to Kirk Your Enthusiasm. I'm your host, Kirk Henderson of MavsMoneyBall.com. For my first episode, I was joined by my friend Matt Moore of the Action Network. You may know him from basketball Twitter as HP Basketball. We really went all over the place about the Mavericks. Uh, over under win totals, Kristaps Porzingis, Luka Doncic, uh, where the Mavs go in the future. And then we spent a little time at the end talking about the NBA at large this season. So let's uh, get right to it with Matt Moore of the Action Network. The uh, Vegas over-unders came out, and I'm not really good with the gambling, and it's taken me a long time to learn really what these numbers mean. And I know the Westgate uh, book says 40.5 wins, which I think you believe is a little high, whereas all my Mavs friends think is 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 low. So so what are, what are your really thoughts on that to, to get started with? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Um, when you look at it, there's – a wide range of these things where the books are always going to kind of be in line, but we've, I've got up uh, over at action network. We've gotten posted, but also on my side, I've got the numbers for DraftKings, FanDuel points, but Westgate and Caesars and Caesars is always going to be a little bit more aggressive and Westgate's always going to be a little bit more conservative. Um, Westgate's actually up a little bit to 40 and a half uh, after going to 39 and a half initially. So they were on the low side, which isn't surprising. They tend to be lower on the worst teams and higher uh, on some of the better teams. They're they're Westgate's maybe the sharpest book that I can, I can kind of, Uh, talk about like they're they're the one that i trust the most like 41 and a half is the highlight uh that was at FanDuel. i haven't known don't know if that's still up that was a couple of weeks ago FanDuel had them at 41 and a half uh 42 wins which means that the dallas mavericks would be over 500 and i'm just i i'm really astonished with where the perception is on this team because like look i was super high on dallas's over last year and I miss it by a game. They miss it by a single friggin' game after they tore the entire team down in midseason in the Porzingis trade and then, you know, tanking a little bit in order to try and protect the draft stock to try and get it protected. Um, you know, look, when they had a competent veteran roster of guys where it was like, oh, they got Yogi Ferrell, you know, Yogi Ferrell, and they've got um, Yogi Ferrell, and they've got. Uh, Harrison Barnes, who is, you know, a questionable player in a lot of ways, but is still like an NBA caliber wing. Like he's definitely an NBA caliber dude. Um, and they had DeAndre Jordan, who played like garbage last year. He absolutely did play like garbage last year. And getting rid of him is like a that's a addition by subtraction element. But still, like these were all guys that I could be like, okay, I I believe in this. These are all guys that are established. They have a history of of contributing to winning teams. And now, I, I don't know how many of those guys there are now on this team. Like, you've got Luka, and that's that's the biggest thing, is I feel like this number is about five wins too high because everyone's just like, well, Luka. And I'm like, well, okay, Luka's really good, but we saw in the back half of the year, and the way that Luka's game is, Luka's a guy that does so many little things and is so good at so many things, but he makes everybody better like he's a scorer if you're a facilitator he's going to get you buckets and if you're a finisher he's going to get you assists and he's going to rebound and he's going to do all these these things in the middle and he's going to you know provide spacing but he can also get to the rim like there's all this combination that he fits in with everybody else but if you give him the kind of roster he had at the end of last year 
it was a disaster. Like they were actively trying to lose, so that takes some of it. But getting to 500 in the Western Conference, you have to have like a high number of guys that I'm absolutely convinced. Like those guys are definitely NBA caliber. They have guys that I think might be NBA caliber. Like I like cool. I like Maxi Kleber a lot. I like Kleber a lot. I like. Um, I really like DeLon Wright, who they, they nabbed. I think he's really good. I think he's underrated. I like Dorian Finney-Smith, but everybody on Dallas seems like they're just like one or two steps higher on the organizational chart than they, they should be, where it's like the fourth man should probably be the fifth or the sixth man, and the sixth man should probably be the seventh or the eighth. And when I look at that total roster up and down, I'm like, I do not see a 500 team um, with what they've got in front of them, no matter how good Luka is. So is it more, in your estimation, would it be more of a of an issue because they're in the Western Conference, or is the roster really that lacking in quality depth? I mean, I, I sort of feel like if they were in the East, you could give them a three or four game boost like they're seeing right now, and and you know the path to five hundred would make a lot more sense than it does as the West is kind of spelled out. Yeah, no, if they're in the Eastern Conference because they're playing teams that. The way to really think about it is not like, oh, they're going to face a bunch of teams that they're definitely going to beat. Like That's not the way to think about it. For teams like Dallas that are on the rise, what you're trying to find is you're trying to find teams, as many teams that you know you can beat if you bring a high-quality effort and enough teams that you can kind of like, oh, we could steal one. Like how many teams are within your range? Because like the Suns can have a really good night and like the, the, I mean, they beat the Bucks twice last year, but like the Sixers this year can have like a really bad night and the Sixers can still beat the pants off the Suns because of how bad the Suns are or were last year at least and with Dallas it's like in the Eastern Conference if they were playing Orlando more look in a bad night from Orlando an average night from Dallas probably wins um if they're playing Charlotte right if they play Charlotte multiple times then it's like okay uh, a really good night from Charlotte probably still doesn't beat an average night from Dallas so it's like all these variances kind of even out versus in the Western Conference it's like I mean in their division like let's just look at their division like is if they play an average game and the Pelicans play an average game, the Pelicans should win that game. If the Rockets play an average game, no matter what Dallas does, Houston should win by 15. If um, San Antonio plays an average game, they should win by about seven. So it's like there's all these these scenarios versus in the Eastern Conference, it would definitely be boosted. But I still think that um, a lot of this I just think is – I'm trying to figure out, like, what's the model for Dallas? What are they going to be good at? Like, what are they really going to be great at? And you could say, like, well, they should be awesome offensively because that's what they were last year. You know, Chris Stapps has never been part of an awesome offense. He has a lot of firepower, but he's never been part of a really great offense. He's been injured for most of it. But, you know, even then, like, he just hasn't been a part of, like, a really prolific offense none of the guys on this team have been part of a really prolific offense. And we know the defense is going to be pretty terrible. So I, I just don't know what, like what is Dallas going to be good at? Let's let's, I want to circle back to Chris Stapps in a minute or two, because your takes on him are, uh, I, I would say they, they influence mine uh, more than they maybe ought to. Uh, but I want to talk about the, the, let's just call it the bottom half of the Southwest division uh Dallas uh the Pelicans and the the Memphis Grizzlies uh, about 3 weeks ago you had a Twitter poll where you want you just kind of put it out there who's going to have more wins the Grizzlies or the Mavs the poll ended up being pretty lopsided but talk a talk a little bit oh man I just did the NBA talk a little bit I'm, <laughs> I've, I've, arri- <laughs> I've arrived I've yeah. arrived um 
explain to me really what you're thinking because you, you said that in an average game between the Pelicans and the Mavs, you think the Pelicans should win in a toss-up. I am of the opinion that if the Mavericks have the better players at the top, which I currently believe, you know, Luca is the best player on those two rosters. Um, may, you you may disagree with that. That may be why. Just kind of walk me through what you're what you're thinking there in terms of you know how those three teams all kind of shake out. Um, I will say this about like Memphis. Um, I think Memphis is more of a situation where like when I went back and actually like really looked at the roster because it's it's kind of the same thing where it's like everyone just goes like oh Luca and Kristaps they're gonna be good. Um, I fell into the same trap of being like oh Ja and 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 three J like Jaron Jackson like. They're going to be good. Well, no. And then I was like, man, they're super young. They're just incredibly young. And those teams always lose their faces off. Um, Jonas Valanciunas is, is surprisingly, I have been really stunned at his development. I was so low on him for the first four years. And now, like, he's a really good player. He put up really good numbers in, in Memphis. And before he got hurt, like, he was helping them win, which is one of the reasons he didn't play late. Um you know, Brandon Clark, I think, obviously brings a lot to the table as a rookie. But, again, he's a rookie. When I actually sat down and was like, okay, let's actually look at how many guys are going to play. Because, like, Andre Godala is not going to be on the team. Or if he does, he's probably not going to play. Because there's going to be, like, just hang out and we'll find a trade for you. Um, like, Solomon Hill, I guess, can play. But he's not a positive in terms of the offense. So then you're just in this, this thing of, like, man, they have a lot of really exciting young talent. And those guys are all probably going to lose their faces off. So, I don't mind that Dallas was there. What I wanted to see was the, I wanted to test perception on Dallas. I wanted to see like, what was the perception on Dallas where I didn't, I would, I didn't post that being like, I kind of think Memphis is better. I posted it to be like, where do people really think Dallas is? And the response I think shows that there is kind of this confidence that Dallas is going to be around a 500 team. Um, that Memphis is probably going to be bad, but they're definitely not going to be with uh, the, the differential I think indicates that there's a confidence that Dallas is this clearly a tier above. Um, I would say as good as Luca is and Luca's awesome. And I love, loved him as a, uh, overseas and was a high, high on watching him and was super into him as the number one pick and thought people overthought it. Uh, and think that everybody that didn't take him above him, uh, missed, uh, even though they got what I think are still good players. Um, I feel pretty confident Drew Holiday is still the best NBA player amongst the two ro- ro- rosters between those two. Um, there's just a knowledge base thing. Like no matter how it's like, oh, but Luke is so intuitive. Okay, great. Um, you just need more experience in the NBA. Young guys make mistakes because they just don't have the knowledge base. The more that you do something, you learn more of the little things to do, the tiny things to do, um, the sense for rhythm. You just get better it's why so many veterans wind up having better plus minus than a lot of more talented rookies it's because you just have to learn what you're doing like kevin durant had a severely negative uh plus minus his first two years in the league and that's one of the best players we've ever seen in the history of basketball because you have to learn what the hell you're doing and luka knows what he's doing don't get me wrong but Drew Holiday is like a seasoned all-NBA pro. Well, he's, he's good on both sides of the ball. Like, yeah. I love me from Luka, but Luka's defense is the fact yeah. that he's 6'8", and not like, that he's good. Like, Drew, can, Drew can shoot. Drew can pass. And so it's like, look, if you're asking me who do I want taking the last shot or trying to take over a game late to win you, it's probably going to be Luka. Like, Luka can go on a 15 15- know spurt and you're like holy crap like they just won them that game which drew most times cannot do but in terms of overall quality he's better but then you like look at the rest of that team and it's like look uh Derek Favors definitely an NBA player JJ Redick definitely an NBA player 
uh, Zion is Zion, and whatever he ends up being will be impactful. Um, he's at least as much of an unknown or known quantity as I think Chris Epps Porzingis is. Uh, sure. I'm not high on Lonzo Ball, but Etwan Moore is like, that's an NBA player. He's able to shoot. He can space the floor. He plays a little defense. Um, Darius Miller, pretty good shooter. I like Jackson Hayes a lot. Um, you just go up and down. Josh Hart, I actually like quite a bit of the of the, uh, of the LA guys. And then, you know, I, I saw them up close and personal last year in a game in OKC. And I was really impressed with the Mecca Okafor. Um, he's actually like an NBA player now for however long that lasts. Like, no, he's he's not a complete negative. His offense is giving you enough, and he's I think he's really working on defense. So I like I look at all those guys, and I'm like, those are all definitely NBA players. And then I look at the Mavericks, and I'm like, Dorkin Finney Smith probably an NBA player. Like Dwight Powell is like probably like he's he's definitely an NBA player at some level. Um, like Josh Jackson is, is likely an NBA player. There's all these guys where I'm like, I don't know, like if this is if this is really like what we should be like looking at. Um, yeah, so Cause if you don't know, if you don't know who, who, who your fourth and fifth starters are, that, that is not a great argument for your team's depth, which is currently really the, the problem with the Mavericks at the moment. I will say when I'm hearing you list and I've read all this stuff, so I should know better, but when you hear like the, the, the Memphis and Pelicans front court options, there's just a lot more depth and like quality depth between all those guys compared to Dallas as much as I might like Porzingis there's not a single player on the Mavericks team who can grab a rebound outside of Luka yeah and like Dallas should beat Memphis in all four of their meetings or at least three of the four like they should beat them three out of four times and quite honestly like they should win they should win one game versus the Pelicans and have a really good chance in another one they should lose probably two of them win one and then one's probably a toss-up um, they're pretty close. Like, I don't think that I don't think New Orleans is like leaps and bounds better. Like, there, if you told me that Dallas finished with a better record than New Orleans, I'd be like, oh, so the Chris Depps thing worked out. I'm a little surprised, but okay. Like, they're not completely shocking. That makes sense. Versus, like, if you told me like the Suns finished with a better record than the New Orleans, I would be like, what? That's insane. Um, so I'm also really high on New Orleans just because, again, like, I've I, I talked to, to Brian Schroeder, so I'm obviously high on Zion because I've been inundated with him for a year and a half now. Um, mm-hmm. And then I'm high on Drew. I've always been high on Drew Holiday. Uh, I really like Josh Hart. I love J.J. Redick. Derek Favors was really good in Utah. Like, that, those all guys, I look at those guys, I'm like, that's like a playoff quality roster. Like, they're, I, if I list the top five players on – New Orleans, I'm like, that's a playoff quality starting five versus I list the five best players on Dallas. And it seems like you're thinking is like, yeah, but they've got Luca and Chris Stapps and we can get to Chris Stapps in a minute. But, um, you know, I'm like, okay, but again, I don't think Luca is such a talent that he can just go out there and drag anybody to 500. I just don't believe that he's that level of talent. I think he's, great and amazing and they're gonna have a wonderful career and win a bunch of games and and be in a bunch of conversations for a lot of awards but i i don't necessarily think that he's he's not lebron and that's a level of player that you have to be in order to kind of for me to believe you can lift a team to that level well one one more question then before we talk porzingis what is their path to being you know a competitive team I really before before you answer, I really think had they overpaid for Danny Green and signed him, this conversation might have been fairly different because 
you know, Green is an NBA caliber starter. He might have been, he might be a little older, but he's a definite player like the one we've, like the ones we've been describing. You know, you can plug him and understand the majority of what you're going to get. But without that, and then with kind of their, their, you know, their, their interesting kind of flex, it, 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 it's a, it's a restricted cap situation where they have, you know, one guy coming off the books next year uh uh and and not a lot of space and then you know looks like they're doing the thing there that the Mavericks and lots of teams are doing this day this day and age and saving up cap space for some god awful reason i'm just i'm not i'm not down on their future i'm just it it, it feels a lot murkier than it ought to considering you know how good luka is and the potential of porzingis yeah so i think part of it is they need some of these guys to hit right like you need you need Maxi Cleaver to like, he needs to be like a significant player. He needs to be like, Oh wow. He's, he's really good. Uh, and not just like, Oh, he's, he's, I like him. He's kind of, he does a lot of things. Um, you need him to be better than like late 2000s Jonas Derebko, who was actually a really good player. Um, that's a pretty obvious comparison between the two, I think. But even then, like um, you need him to be like, really good now he was like 70 percent on on spot up last year and so if you put them together that kind of offensive performance that raises the profile you need uh dfs i think to be really high level um and you need i think jalen brunson's got to be really high level too you need a bunch of the young guys to basically outperform what's expected of them so that you're able to kind of talk yourself into these things being like a real difference maker like justin jackson's got to be and then the other thing i think their path is um is Chris Stapps. Like the path is Chris Stapps. Like Luke is going to be Luke no matter what. And so you're going to have options with how to build around him. Uh, but if you want to take the, the most, the most direct route, the most direct line from a, where the Mavericks are to be a second round contending playoff team is Chris Stapps Porzingis reaching the very height of his potential. What is that potential? See, I, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to admit to something that I probably shouldn't, uh, on a podcast, I've not watched a lot of KP. I don't watch a lot of Eastern Conference basketball. And when you look at how many games the guys actually played, I really haven't had that much of an opportunity, uh, particularly in the second half of seasons. So, you know, explain to me a little bit about your your pessimism as with him in terms of being a talent, but also what do you think really his ceiling could be? The problem with him is he shows flashes and he gets a lot of hype and then he settles in. And just when he would normally start hitting the, you know, Chris S. Porzingis hasn't been good the last two months or Chris S. Porzingis hasn't been good the last couple of weeks. Like his shooting percentages have really dropped off. He gets hurt. And then the story becomes about him being hurt. And it's like, man, when we get him back, don't you remember like how good he was? Look at these highlights. And that's how it feels differently. Um, my biggest problem is there's nothing consistent that I've ever found when he's healthy about his play. I don't find him to be consistently a great defender. I find him to be, uh, I find him to make consistent plays that are impressive, which is different. He's not a consistently dominant offensive player. He would drift for certain amounts of time, like you would just kind of like, he'll have stretches where you're just like, where, where's Porzingis? What's he doing? Um, he's not a guy that for the level of attention that he is set to draw, 
and the way that people talk about him, he's just never really this kind of player that is expressed in, in he's not there every single play. Um, I think he comes with a lot of concerns in terms of he was a guy that I noted was was super like, I don't understand why we're running Jeff Hornacek's offense. I don't like this. I wish we'd run more triangle. <laughs> and that was like my first like, uh oh. That that's that's how will that go over with Rick Carlisle, noted friendly players coach? Yeah. Um and so like there's just a, a lot of, of things where he got a lot of he got a lot of success early and was really super hyped. Uh, and I, I don't think that that means that he's bad. I think that that means that his his value is a little overestimated. And the same thing we see with all of these markets. Um, I am often, you have heard me make this analogy a million times. If we take the Lakers guys that were traded in the Pelicans trade and we put them on Charlotte, what do we think of them? And the answer is we don't really think of them at all. Nobody talks about them. We're just like, oh, they're okay. Because they're in Charlotte. If we put Chris Depp's Porzingis in Charlotte, I don't really know what we're talking about. I don't know how he's discussed, but because he was a Nick, the conversation was drastically different. And you had the whole, like, he's a unicorn thing. Um, like he was like the big thing. And it was like, Oh, okay. Jokic might be good, but he's no Porzingis. And then two years later, it's like, well, Jokic is infinitely better, but a lot of that's the injury. And so it's like, I don't want to crush him too bad because by the same token to me being like, look, he's got these bad months that you have to consider in alongside his, his really great starts. He might be a player that if he's ever healthy in March, kills it in March. He might be a guy that like he gets into late season and is like, I'm I'm in a rhythm, I'm comfortable. He plays better late. Or like January might be like the month that he goes supernova. Like we just don't know these things because of how often he's been injured. Uh, and that's what's frustrating about trying to provide analysis. However, because he's a young, talented pl- player, he's like he's he's tall and can shoot, the unicorn thing, like 36% for his career. Um because of that, uh, and because he played in New York, we only tend to talk about what he can do, and we never seem to talk about what his limitations are, or what the issues mm-hmm. are, or what winds up happening, or how he's limited in, in those in those aspects. Like those are never things that really stand out, or the fact that he didn't really raise his team by much at all. Um, he was the best Nick, but that's just not saying much. And that's the other thing is you can't really judge him because he hasn't been on a real team; he's been on the Knicks. So I don't know how to evaluate him because all of these things that may be problematic with him might be better if he's on a really capable roster. And then that leads in the question of, is this a really capable roster that can support him and allow him to be the best? So these are all like really interesting questions. There's, there are ways this can work. My skepticism is not dead set. I'm not just like, this is not going to work. It's not going to go over. There's enough unknowables. If he and, and, Port, and, and if he and Luca just click, if they just, understand each other and he's constantly feeding him in pick and pop situations and his shot holds up and he's knocking them down. Um, he can be extremely dangerous. Like he was shooting 40% in 2017, 18 before he went down, right? That was, he was shooting 40% from three. Now there's some drop off after the first really supernova month. Um, but all that does matter in evaluating it. Like there's a, there's a, a super, there's a super talented player there that if he hits the consistency and he's able to stay on the court can be all these things. I'm just curious about whether or not the roster is there, if he can stay healthy and if the consistency is going to be there for them to actually win. Is one of the arguments that I've been, you know, having with, with 
a, a lot of my Mavs friends is really his role. And one of the things I'm going to find really interesting in the early part of the season is who between uh, Luca and Porzingis is is the the team leader. I mean, Luca's going to have the ball more just by by default in his position. But so far, Porzingis' time in the NBA, he's always been the man. And I think, you know, that team and, and really Porzingis, from, from what little I know about him thus far, I think he might really benefit from being the, the, you know, the second guy on the totem pole as opposed to the primary scorer. I mean, I know he, he can't, he doesn't pass. It's, it's really great looking at his statistics. And a lot of people say, well, what if he made that second pass out of a pick and roll? He's not doing that. He's been trained to look at the rim. Um, that's what he's going to do. Uh, but if, if he, you know, if, if he's not the, you know, sole bucket getter on the team, I think that really could potentially open up a lot of freedom for him. I, I am going to be interested to see how he, you know, handles that that level of, you know, not being the guy. But I think that might serve him better. Does that make any sense? Yeah, no, it definitely does. I think, like I said, I always think of these things in terms of actual actions and sequences. Uh, some guys just look at skills, and I'm always like, all right, well, what can you do with everybody else? And he and Luca, it's pretty perfect. Like you can run that high pick and roll, uh, and then if he pops, if they try and blitz Luca. And he hits Porzingis, and Porzingis consistently knocks down that three. Then he's just going to torch people. And if they don't switch, if they're like, "All right," we, we're, or if they don't blitz him, if they're like, "All right, we're going to switch this," and then he is, and Porzingis is able to then attack a smaller opponent off the dribble and just get to the rim for a little runner. Then again, that's going to be awesome. Like he's going to be incredible in that aspect. Um, I think he fits really well. Like, there's all these reasons he fits. I think it's tough because, um, you know, fit is kind of interesting. I don't know any player that doesn't fit with Luca. I just don't, I don't know any player that Luca wouldn't have an impact on that wouldn't be, that wouldn't benefit from having Luca on the floor. I can't think of one like LeBron would benefit from Luca on the floor and LeBron, you know, is pretty much going to be the same guy no matter what. And even like the worst players are, are still going to benefit. Like Evan Turner would probably be pretty good next to Luca. Like there's all these things in which, um, they're all, I think, gonna they they would all benefit from these things. So there's all these dynamics that I think really work. Um, you know, one thing the last full season that uh, he played, Porzingis did in 2018, he spent 25 percent of his time in the post. And so you can run like actual, you know, hashtag triangle. Um, you can run, <laughs> you know, with him in the, in the deep post. And I think with Carlisle, that's especially helpful, right? Like they have all these sets that they use for. Dirk that you could just transition and use Porzingis in and put him at the elbow and have him kind of work things over and score one-on-one with his size. If they put a smaller defender on him and if they put a bigger defender on him, all right, well then we're going to exploit him using Luca. It just changes the dynamic of it. Uh, there's all these mechanisms I think that you can use. So offensively, I think there's a lot of ways that you can put those guys together. The question is going to be, you know, can the other guys punish them enough? Uh, can they have enough fluidity? And, you know, a lot of it's going to be with Porzingis, like you mentioned the passing. Like, is he going to be willing, okay, if they adjust to him, can he figure out his way out of that? Like, can you, if they throw a double team at him in the post, can they just neutralize that part of his game? Like, is he solvable? That's going to be the big key. Is, is If you're really going to go to the furthest place that you need these two guys to go, they both have to be unsolvable. And there's the prospect of them being so, um, but it's, that's a really high bar. 
And so that's the question. Can you develop both guys to where teams can't be like, all right, if they do this, we're going to do that. If they do the other thing, we're going to do this. And then we got it covered. And then Tim Hardaway Jr. is going to have to beat us and he's not going to. Like that, <laughs> that's like what you have to do, right? Because that's going to be the scouting report on, on these guys. Well, and there will be I, nights I, when, the, when the combo is fantastic. And there will be nights, I think, when it doesn't look great. I also think when you start looking at the depth of the roster, I think Carlisle is going to have to stagger them a lot more than uh, than we originally have thought about just because they're going to need some sort of scoring punch. Okay, a couple more short Mavs questions, then I want to move on to kind of the league at large. First, how annoying was I about Luka Doncic all last year? And second, do you think Luka is a better scorer or better distributor? Uh, first, I think that you were not necessarily, you weren't really obnoxious about Luca last year because you were so consciously aware of it. Like from the moment they won the lottery or they, the, where they landed in the lottery and from the moment that they got Luca from the moment that he landed and you got him, you were so aware of like, I can't be that guy. <laughs> that it, only, it only came out in real like drips and pieces you were way worse about the other kids. You're way worse about DeAndre Ayton, Marvin Bagley, and Trey Young. You are way worse because you were trying so hard not to just cape for Luca that you're like, no, I'm, I'm not. You know, I'm not saying Luca's better. I'm just saying, like, you know, you know, Trey Young was good for a month, and you know, he's horrible at defense. Like, you were real passive aggressive. Yeah, it's real passive aggressive towards the other rookies. <laughs> Because what you really want is you just want the GMs, the front offices of Phoenix, Sacramento, um, to be up on a stage and just say, we should have taken Luca. We were wrong. Like you want them to say that. And then you want like everyone to just be like, Trey Young is good, but Luka Doncic is better. Which the, the, the rookie of the year vote should have been that for you. That should have been the validation. But it's going to be. <laughs> it is. Because I remember you got irritated when I made a comment that was like, I don't know who's going to have a better career, which I still don't. And I think it's okay to say that. Like, Trey's really good, and we're really early on. And it's like, if Luca had shown defensive capacity in year one, I'd be like, oh, it's going to be Luca, But he didn't. And so yeah. it's like, Trey's going to be one of the worst defenders in the league. He's going to be one of the absolute worst defenders in the league. But if he's horrible and Luke is only bad, then it's just about the offense because you're still talking about just two bad zeros on defense. So that's what I think is going to be really interesting. And then um, as the question of whether he's a better scorer or distributor, I would say he's a better distributor. I think it's more important how good he is as a scorer because there were games last year that I would watch and be like, I don't know where Dallas is going to go with this. Like, now what? Like, they've you know they've hit you with a, with a 10-0 run. What are you going to do? And then Luca would just start making plays and getting buckets on his own. And when he would start hitting those shots, he rattled defenses in a way that is very rare for rookies to do. Like it's rare to see rookies where they hit a step back and the guys start looking around at each other. Like the defenders looking over at his teammate, like, um, I don't know what I'm supposed to do there. And the teammates are looking at him like, how could you let him get that off? And the teammates like, what do you want me to do? What do you, what am I supposed to do? When you have that kind of an impact on a defense and you rattle them, that's way bigger than any sort of functional skill. Like I love all the guys that set great screens and make great bounce passes. Like I'm an Al Horford fan. No one's ever been rattled by Al Horford, but a bunch of teams last year were really rattled when they saw Luca do what he did. 
He got one there. Uh, I saw it on my on my Twitter timeline about a month ago. I apologize to whoever posted this, but it was a post up against Paul Millsap where he fit. He, he faked a fadeaway and got Millsap in the air and just sidestepped him by maybe six inches and got a floater to fall. Yep. And Millsap, who is an excellent defender is just like, how in the world did he get this shot off? That's really what I was surprised about. And the more I kind of reflect on the season, I thought he was going to come in and be a guy who got, you know, seven, eight assists in really creative ways. But the scoring was not something I fully, I didn't think that was possible because of the same reasons that NBA GMs were kind of willing to pass on him. Um, I just didn't think it was there. And he's really like, it's it's just incredible looking back on it. I kind of don't know where he goes other than getting in better shape. But, uh, you know, it, it, being able to score, you know, 20-ish points a game is is certainly a skill that has staying power. Yeah, and like when you dig into his stuff too, um, you know, I'm I'm always big on, on synergy. So it's like out of the pick and roll, he was 69th percentile. Nice. Um, in scoring just like on his own. And then like, uh, he was 69th percentile again, nice in half court offense, um, including assists, like dragging the Mavericks who were not a, a really good offensive team to that level, I think is, is pretty impressive. Um, he was much worse in transition. Like that's one of the things is uh, he was 46 percentile in transition last year. I don't know if you didn't knew that he only shot um, 51% in transition, which is actually really low league wide. So there's a real uptick that can happen there. Uh, now lead ball handlers, I've noticed actually struggle more than you'd think. Like Harden's transition numbers are a little shockingly bad the last couple of years because it's really tiresome handling the ball all the time. It's just really, and trying to find another gear on top of it, I think really takes it out of guys and hurts their efficiency, especially when everyone's like jump on that dude. But, you know, spot ups, he was good. Jumpers, he was good around the rim. Um, he was good. 61st percentile around the basket on non post ups. Like that's really good. Um, it, his runner is probably one that he can work on. Like he needs to, like his floater actual numbers are not awesome. So he probably needs to work on that like a little bit, but he was good on, on catch and shoot. He was good off the dribble um, having all that kind of versatility offensively, I think is, is really key. A lot of it for the, him this year really needs to be, he's got to find bread and butter that he can go to with teammates. Um, what buckets can he get Dwight Powell? What buckets can he get Tim Hardaway Jr.? Uh, Chris Dapps is a, the biggest one, obviously. Um, and it's about, it's also about like, this is one of the hardest things that not only for young players, but especially uh, young European players, Jokic had this trouble for two years of, it, until last year, Jokic would not accept that he was the best player on the team. Like people would say, like, "Well, as the team's best player," and he's like, oh, "I don't know if I am or not. I don't think that's true." Like he's like adamantly believed this. It wasn't just lip service. He couldn't really accept it. Now I think Luke is wired differently than Jokic is, because um, I don't think anyone's wired like him. But I do think that uh, he's probably in a position where uh, he's got to figure out bread and butter plays to make the other guys better. Okay. And we're back with Matt Moore from the action network, Matt, that is a lot more maps talk than I had intended, but I know I'm glad that we talked about some of these things. Um, let's kind of move on to the NBA at large. So we have uh, an astonishing like seven to eight weeks till training camp, which 
I'm f- kind of glad for. Uh, I'm sure the fans are really starting to itch for basketball, but I think the uh, the you know Team USA could tide them over if they're if people are willing to wake up at like you know two three in the morning to watch games. What uh, this far out? What you know NBA stories are you going to be most interested in that aren't you know your kind of traditional Lakers, Clippers, you know whoever the power teams are? Like what are you kind of looking forward to this far out? Wow, Get, dropping the the radio questions on me. I get those on oh, like the radio calls that I do. Uh, <laughs> um, so I think for me, one of the the things I'm really interested to see is I want to know what parity actually looks like. I want to know what that means for the win totals. So we have here's what we have. Last year we saw a real truncation from the top end and the back end towards the middle of the league because teams were tanking less. There were some bad teams. But really, when I was watching these teams late in the season, um, before there were injuries, the Bulls were kind of feisty before Porter got hurt. The Suns were actually really feisty before Oubre got hurt. Um, And so, like, there was this truncation, and you saw it when you actually went back and looked at the standings. As somebody that obsesses over the playoff race the way that I do, like, I was somebody that probably noticed a little bit more. Like, look, we only had one 60-win team, and they only won flat 60, and that was the Bucks. Um, we had two teams win in the teens, the Knicks and the Suns. And then, like, number two in the West, the Mavericks, were like, second worst, were 33 wins. That's Pretty a really gap. high bar. Now, in the East, you had a bunch of teams. You had, what, you had three teams um, that were under – sorry, there were three teams with less than 20 in the teens. The Cavs were in there, too. Uh, but you had two more teams in the East, sub 30, but then most of the league was above 30 wins. Like a vast majority of the league was above 30 wins. And we have even more, I think, parity this season now that Houston is fundamentally changed and different. OKC is now no longer going to kind of rack up wins the way that it did. Um, the Bucks are probably going to regress a little. The Warriors are obviously not going to win at the clip that they did. They're not just going to be a guaranteed, if they try, they win. Um, the Nuggets, I think, probably regress a little bit. So I want to know like what the win totals look like. like what's the eight seed in the West going to be? Is it going to be uh, 48 wins again, or is it going to be closer to 45? And if it's at 45, let's say that I'm wrong, and the Mavericks are actually in that conversation, and they get to 42. Um, you're now within like standard error, like the range of, of error, the margin for error of them slipping into, okay, we're one game out of the playoff spot with two left to play. And that makes things really interesting. I was talking to a league person a couple of years ago. And one thing he said was really interesting. He said, we don't worry about tanking. Uh, we don't care about that. Some teams are bad. What we want is we want the most number of teams competing for a playoff spot as late into the season as possible. That's the best model for us for both ratings, perception and interest. I thought that was really interesting. And so like, that seems to be what we're headed towards is a wide number of teams all competing because the Western conference may be a complete train wreck, but that also means that teams like the Hawks and bulls can actually make a run at the playoffs. And in the Western conference, you know, Warriors, Nuggets, Blazers, Rockets, Jazz, Thunder, Spurs, Clippers, Kings, uh, Lakers, probably Pelicans, and Mavericks can all justifiably say we can make a run at a playoff spot. It's just a huge number. So that's maybe like the biggest thing I'm wondering about is like what's parity actually going to look like? Um, and then I think the other, like if we're talking about team numbers, uh, I'm really interested in the Pelicans as is kind of can be shown by my comments earlier. Uh, I'm super interested to see what Milwaukee does. Like, do they come in and just 
roll everybody again as Giannis better and they just go right back to it? Or is it get a little bit harder? They were really healthy last year. Does that, you know, is losing Malcolm Brogdon and then going back to earth a little bit in terms of injuries knock them off the pedestal? And if so, who steps up to be in that tier in the Eastern Conference? Because I think the Sixers are going to finish with the best record in the in the NBA. I think the Sixers are going to be the number one team in, in wins in the NBA next season. Um, who steps up to fill that void? Is it Indiana that's kind of, I think, under the radar and undervalued right now if, if Victor Oladipo comes back? Um, is Brooklyn going to be better just by, like, Kyrie and everything that Kenny Atkinson does and the kind of talent that they've got? There's all these, like, really interesting teams. The young guys are, are super interesting. I was watching Trey Young clips the other day, and they're just going to be a lot of fun. Again, I just think they're going to be a lot of fun. Um, so there's, I just think that the level of basketball is going to be really high. And the unknown variables, I think, are what's most compelling because it doesn't feel like a season where we know what's going to happen. Okay, so that is a lot of things. Um, (laughs) So since you write and work for the Action Network, this far out, do you have any team that you consider an absolute stay away from in terms of a team that you just can't get a read on when you're going through, you know, their lineups, their data, what we know about them right now? Miami is the number one. I have no idea what to expect from the from the Heat. I have zero clue on Miami. Um, their roster is really weird. I went on Locked on Heat uh, a couple days ago and talked about it. Their roster is weird to me. I don't know if they're going to have Dragic. Uh, I don't know if there's like there's a lot of thoughts about starting Justice Winslow at point guard, which is a really <laughs> weird. It's a thing they did last season and it worked. And I sat down and watched the clips this week to be like, what does this look like? And it's clunky and awkward uh, and super weird, and yet it averages about 1.2 points per possession. It's extremely effective for them. Um, So that's like a really crazy one, I think, to try and figure out. Um, OKC, I think, is the other one that I'm definitely advising like a stay away on their their win total. Um, It's – they're at somewhere in in the – like around 30 and a half, which – I want to take the over because I'm like, all right, Chris Paul, Daniil Gallinari, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, um, Stephen Adams, Terrence Ferguson, New Orleans Noel. Okay, that's a number of NBA players. I can count on those guys to be NBA players. They'll be good enough for them to be decent. Uh, but they could also just like trade everybody, and it could be like an absolute mess. So to them, I, I think they're a stay away. I actually think the Clippers are kind of a stay away. Um, because Wild load management. Well, that's an interesting question. So, one, Paul George is not going to be fully healthy for the start of the season. So, there is an expectation that he'll be on a rest program. Uh, People I have talked to in the league, not with the Clippers, but with the league, do not anticipate Kawhi being on the same program he was on last year. That... I think matters in terms of what does Kawhi wants? Does Kawhi look at last year and go, that worked. I'm going to do that again. Or does Kawhi go like, no, I was hurt. I feel better. I got full summer off. Um, I played, I, you know, I was hurt during the playoffs, but not so much that I couldn't play. Um, I can go. So like, that's really interesting. And they, both those things, I think put things in, into real question about how they're going to perform. Um, the rest of that roster is also really good, but it's also trying to figure out like, all right, what are they going to be able to count on? What, what do they look like? Um, and so that's like, a, I think there's a lot of stuff there to be a little skeptical of. And the last one I think is the Raptors uh, in that 
we have a lot of evidence that championship teams suffer extreme hangover and the Raptors partied pretty hard for this team, especially given all everything in there. Uh, it's an aging roster. Gasol, Ibaka, and Lowry are all well above 30, into their mid-30s, headed towards the last part of their careers. And I don't know the motivation is going to be there because after Kawhi left, they're not going to repeat. So I don't know what they're going to show up and look like. I don't know what kind of effort they're going to give. I don't know what they're going to be able to give after how emotional that run was. So they're the other team that I look at and go, I don't want to go anywhere near that. Okay. Okay, I've got two more things for you that I'm going to let you go. I apologize for taking up this much of your time. I talk a lot. So when you're <laughs> when when you're reading, when you're doing your research, kind of when you're, you're, you're consuming all the basketball content that you consume, which, folks, I, I can't tell you this matt reads more than just about anybody i know who are the who are the two or three people out there who really influence the way that you think about basketball uh low is the first one it's too easy but it's just uh nah, Zach, he's smart. <laughs> so keen on everything the way that Zach was able to take a lot of things that were kind of building around 2012-ish, um, that was when we really started to see the first in-depth video breakdowns. Like that stuff was just kind of starting then. Um, and he integrated that with sources, with a narrative, and he maintains a sense of fun and whimsy and doesn't take it too seriously. All of those things, I think, combined for making him – um, the most informative and there are people that say that he's not entertaining. I think if that's the case, then what you're really looking for is you're looking for a pure columnist and not an, and not an analyst um, or a journalist. Like you're looking for just somebody to like kind of riff. So um, I think, and that's okay. But you know, when I'm looking, I'm looking to make everybody smarter. That's kind of the niche that I found myself in. And so trying to do that, I don't think anybody does that better than Zach Lowe. Um, and then I think the other one that, that really influences me. Uh, it's probably Rob Mahoney, who I've known forever uh, at Sports Illustrated. And Rob has such an effortless prose. Like his prose is always really good. And I'm always keenly aware of the structure that he uses and how he's just a guy that has effortless ability. In basketball terms, he's one of those guys whose athleticism is just like, you're just like, how? Like he just does everything so easily. He's just able to make everything looks so easy uh and that's how i think rob writes and he's able to write with real beauty about the game and real insight it's really sharp so those are the two guys that i'm always kind of consistently blown away by okay okay thanks i i tend to agree with both of them you know that rob was my first editor and the first uh uh round of feedback he ever gave me um basically shattered any dreams that i had of writing professionally um which you know ended up cutting out a lot of uh time uh which was nice okay so last let us know what you're working on and then i think you should plug the really cool uh action network app yeah um so right now i'm actually in the middle of doing a bunch of numbers on win totals i've pretty much decided that the three things that i focus on most in the nba season are the playoff picture the MVP race and win totals. And those are the three things that are kind of my bag. Um, and so I'm working a lot on win totals right now. I did a first run of them the other day. I've written some team pieces. I'm starting work on last year. I ranked uh, by confidence, all 30 win totals and gave the case for both the over and the under. We're going to have those up 
uh, here probably in September. Uh, we'll have that up again. Uh, excited for that project. So I'm working on that. Working on trying to figure out what happens to teams after they over exceed expectations. What happens the year after to those teams? I'm working on pieces on that. Um, I'm going to look at, St- at Steph Curry and see exactly what I think about his MVP chances this year going to be pretty high on his chances. His numbers are pretty good um, in terms of the odds. So that's what I'm working on. Uh, you can find all my stuff at the Action Network app. So I've been telling people this for a long time. Um, okay, if I did not work for the site, I genuinely would still use this app the most of anyone. Uh, I used to work for CBS Sports, which means I use the CBS Sports app all the time. And as a sports consumer, I've obviously used ESPN. So I know all of these sports tracking apps. A lot of them having been on the the other side of kind of the production meetings on these things is you learn like how much stuff is going on internally and they're usually pretty clunky and that influences things. And they're trying to manage through big corporate systems and big, big structures in terms of the networks to get the information in there. And they're laden down with trying to sell you stuff and get content in front of you. Our app gets you the information first. It's got access to our articles. It's got access to our information, but it's, primarily for you to track your games and all that stuff. Even if you don't like to bet and Kirk can tell you this, it is the best app. I tracked it. Our feed is so fast. I tracked it during a game and I tracked first. I noticed that when I was sitting there, the app would update faster than the TV feed in the media room. I was watching another game. That blows my mind. And I've, I've seen that happen too. I just, I don't understand how that happens. And then I did it live and I noticed that basically within about four seconds of an action being occurring it goes from scores table to our app in about four seconds it's crazy how fast <laughs> it is um if you do choose to make picks in there which you don't have to put any money in we are not a, a, a for pay site we don't do gambling we just provide gambling information you can track picks that you've placed elsewhere uh but you can just do it for fun too and it'll give you win probability on those things so you can track all that stuff my stuff's on there including what's been a very bummer of a WNBA season after I overperformed greatly in my first year doing it uh I went on a great run in the playoffs and was really hot on win totals you can bet on all sorts of stuff we've got great coverage of fantasy and all that stuff as well we are huge into DFS we're huge on all these things if you're a major sports consumer, you want to have the Action Network app. It's going to be the best thing that you're going to find for checking things out when you're trying to avoid your family. I, I that's, a, that's a pretty good sales pitch. Well, Matt, thank you so much for letting me take an, an hour of your night. This has been a lot of fun. Um, I, you really helped make my first podcast feel fairly comfortable. Uh, and I'm glad that you uh, approve of the ridiculous name that I've choose, chosen for the podcast, Kirk, Your Enthusiasm uh so yeah uh, appreciate your time i'm so glad that you're doing this man you're gonna have so much fun and i'm gonna be definitely promoting it as much as i can thanks man all right we will talk soon have a good one